0: I V M Look at this guy walking up to us with so much swag, rolling his feet and grinning idiotically at everyone. He looks like a total dandy, dhoti tied into a fashionable knot, arms painted, sacred thread very prominently displayed across his hairy chest. He hasn't done anything in life except have a huge gang of friends, including snake charmers and magicians and gamblers and even one ascetic who was taking a permanent break from his vows and, of course, uh, us. One of his old drinking buddies was the emperor's cousin, so he gets free admission to the court. You and I have been waiting here for days and the bloody chamberlain hasn't let us in yet, but maybe now that our friend has arrived, we'll be allowed to meet the emperor at last. Our only consolation is that we haven't been the only ones waiting. And we're not even the most important people hanging around here in the hope of an audience. Every morning for the last few days, we've been treated to the spectacular sight that is the moving military headquarters of the most powerful North Indian emperor since the end of the Guptas less than a 100 years ago. There are herds of immense elephants, dark as thunderclouds, decked with banners, cloths, coronets and unguents, their long white tusks gleaming. There are herds of horses, brown and black and white and red, standing straight and tall, some pawing the ground, some restlessly pacing, some neighing, some dropping dung, others nuzzling around in a futile attempt to find some grass in this huge camp, completely cleared by the emperor's moving army and retinue. But much more spectacular than these animals are the huge crowds of people standing around with bright white umbrellas spread over their heads, throwing shade over their dark angry faces. These men range from the insignificant Rajas of districts to the Maharajas of huge provinces, some of whom voluntarily submitted to the Emperor, others who were defeated in battle and forced to attend on him in his camp, standing in the sun hoping to be invited within, jewels glittering on their crowns and profuse jewellery as sweat trickles down their arms and their tenants desperately fan them with chowries. We've been lucky to have a contact on the inside who has let us in. So let's join this swaggering fellow, whose name is Barnabhatta and follow him within. At the gates of the outer courtyard of the mobile palace, we're met by a tall gentleman in a white coat, a sword with a pearl embossed handle in his left hand and a golden staff in his right, marking him out as the king's chamberlain, who has successfully been avoiding us for the last few days. Now he leads us to another enclosure in the vast camp. The imperial quarters at the center of the many camps of the dozens of vassals who move around with the emperor. We move past the extremely pungent elephant stables where Banabhatta gets very distracted by the emperor's favorite elephant, Darpashata, he who is endowed with musk, a huge monster in his fifties captured in the forests of the Vindhya mountains. He is about 13 feet high, as tall as two tall men standing on each other's shoulders. Darpashata shifts his weight around on three feet, grunting, flicking his immense trunk which is flecked with pink. His keepers are plying him with fresh juicy shoots and creepers and he slowly munches away at a thick bundle of plantains, juice dripping out of his mouth. His eyes glow red and his huge ears flap like flags as though daring us to come closer. We're obviously not that foolhardy, let's just grab Bana and keep going. This fool is spouting all sorts of flowery compliments, something about how Darpashata is a mountain endowed with tusks, a varaha with a trunk. No wonder he's a favourite in the court. Now we move past three courtyards, crowded with vassal kings who glare at us as they see us being led past. In a fourth courtyard is a pavilion with a throne of pale white stone at the center, washed with sandalwood water, cool to the touch of the man who lounges on it, resting his weight casually on his right arm which grasps the edge of the throne. His left foot rests on a spectacular footstool encrusted with rows of sapphires and rubies where defeated kings have to put their heads. His feet are painted red and his thick, sunburned body is wrapped around with pale silken garments stitched with golden stars, his chest covered in a necklace of huge pearls. He listens to a whole band of Vienna players, his hair tied into a topknot woven with garlands of jasmine as well as emeralds and pearls around him are huge bands of attendants male and female many of them from the families of his vassals and subordinates he smiles at us slowly a mocking gentle smile that doesn't touch his cold hard black eyes measuring us judging us we are gazing into the eyes of the emperor harshavardhana pushyabhuti Maharaja Adhiraja, the last ruler to dominate North India all the way from Punjab to Rajasthan to Bengal after the fall of the Guptas and before the invasions of the Turks. Even as the Guptas paled into shadows, eclipsed by the Huna hordes, the sons of former Gupta vassals began to dawn. The states that emerged in the chaos of the 6th century were ruthless and efficient. That was the only way they could survive against Thoramarna's Hunas, who were burning a swathe from Punjab deep into western Madhya Pradesh. As we saw in our last episode, the trauma of the Huna invasion might have damaged the popularity of Vaishnavism at the time and Shaivism, a much more belligerent religious movement which could draw on a vast network of monasteries led by charismatic preachers, began to take over. New Shiva-worshipping kings now led the battles against Thoramana, Whereas the Gupta imperial eagle, Vishnu's standard, the Garuda Dvaja had watched silently as their armies were shattered, these new kings carrying the standards of Shiva, the Vrishabhadwaja, Bull Banner, managed to push the Hunas back. Here's an inscription from a king of Malwa, who defeated Thoramana himself in the year 515, less than 20 years before the Hunas' first invasion. Pay attention to the language used, which shows just how Indianized even the Hunas had become through the course of the conflict. Keep in mind the rather unpleasant attitudes to women we've discussed in earlier episodes as well. He rendered the Hunas' title of Lord of the Earth false through battle and he offered splendid new thrones to the ascetics, made from the long tusks of the Hunas' elephants. He carried away the most beautiful women of the Hunas' harem, and he offered them to Lord Vrishabhadwaja to mark the strength of his arms. Thoramana as we saw, had tried to appropriate Vaishnava ideas to support his conquests. But his son apparently realized that the Shaivas, with their better organizational structure, their closer ties to powerful Indian kings, and their sophisticated ritual practice, tailored for conflict which could provide services for kings going into battle, would likely be more useful in the long run. Soon, he was busy claiming that he too was a great lord of the earth who bowed to nobody but Shiva and so on and so forth. Isn't it convenient how all these power-crazy warlords left their ads for us to read and reconstruct? Now the second Huna was, in the long run, even less successful than his father Thoramana. The Indian kings that emerged in the anarchy, fighting with each other and dozens of Central Asian tribes who now running amok in India, serving as mercenaries or serving only themselves, managed to slowly consolidate and bring the immense resources of South Asia to bear. In Madhya Desha, between the Ganga and Yamuna rivers, the Makharis formed a new state centered on the ancient city of Kanyakubja. In Malwa, the Aulikara kings of Dashapura, who were among the foremost patrons of the Pashupata Shaivas, were at the forefront of the Hanik Wars the two realized that it was in their interest to coordinate against the Hunas. And soon, two huge armies were dispatched towards Huna positions in Gualia, moving along the Betwa Valley, one moving west, one moving north. As a poet puts it, The infuriated elephants of the army tossed about the trees with their tusks. And the noise they made resounded from the cracks of the Vindhya Mountains. Trees and Huna cavalry were equally successfully tossed by these same infuriated elephants, but peace was still a ways away. The Aulikaras immediately declared themselves Maharajadhirajas, the great kings of kings, attempting once again to seize the mantle of the Guptas, but they were soon defeated by the Malkharis, who now gradually expanded across the Ganga plains and finally restored peace and order. As I pointed out in the last episode, force alone is not enough to win a war politics is at least, if not more, important. It was the Aulikaras who bore the brunt of the Huna onslaught, to paraphrase my guru for this season, Hans Bakker, but in the long run, it was the Malkharis who managed to convince the hundreds of cities of North India to once again fall under an imperial parasol. As always, with the rise of a new center of political power came a new concentration of resources, and Kanyakubja soon bloomed into an immense city studded with parks, gardens, and ponds. Malkhari kings were soon restoring and obviously boasting about restoring temples built during the Gupta period, deliberately seeking to create a connection to that dynasty through their patronage of religion and art, especially theater, which we discussed in the last episode. Maokhari kings are believed to have paid for the creation of dramas such as the Devi Chandraguptam and the Mudra Rakshasam which in addition to the Rasas also come with a very clear political subtext seeking to connect the Maokharis to the prestigious Guptas and through them to the Mauryas. They also tend to make the Guptas look at least a little foolish and unprepared. In Devi Chandraguptam, for example, the hero is Chandragupta II, but his brother Ramagupta doesn't fight a civil war with him. Instead, Ramagupta is kidnapped by the Shakas. The Shakas demand Ramagupta's wife as a ransom, Chandragupta dresses up as said wife and goes and kills the Shakas. It's a Bollywood movie basically, and like many modern Bollywood movies, it seems to serve a political purpose. It's a fun story, though, and it's continued to inspire Indian fiction up till the present day, the latest being a series on the Guptas by Nandini Sen Gupta. Of course... Political juggernauts always make rivals, as we've seen through the course of this season. In the process of expanding through the Ganga plains, the Maokharis had basically steamrolled all the other branches of the Guptas, as well as new dynasties which were trying to make the most of the new political situation. Some of them weren't completely crushed and obviously wanted revenge. To their south were the Guptas of Malwa and to their east the Guptas of Magadha, who went extinct but not before planting the seeds of the Maukharis' destruction. You see, one of the foundational treatises of Indian politics, the Arthashastra, has plenty of advice to give kings who are threatened by political rivals, and there's plenty of evidence to indicate that at least in this time, kings were actually following its advice. But this, of course, brings me to the question of what the Arthashastra actually is. Now, remember in your school textbook, you heard about this brilliant, kind military genius called Chandragupta Maurya and his great, brilliant, ruthless, political Brahmin teacher Chanakya, whom great, brilliant, humble student Chandragupta always obeyed unquestioningly because he was a sanskari boy, not one of the most extraordinary conquerors in human history, according to your textbook. Now, we have no idea if there was actually a historical person called Chanakya or not, but after the fall of the Mauryas, legends about such a gentleman began to crop up. It seems that the Mauryas actually did commission some kind of treatise on politics, which the Sanskritist Patrick Olivelle calls the Dandaniti, which was extremely popular and widely applied. While researching episode 8 of this season, for example, I learned that there's archaeological evidence supporting what it has to say about building fortifications. This text continued to be expanded and reformulated, reaching its final form by the Gupta period when the Guptas, wily fellows that they were, had it compiled and added verses to it, ascribing it to a gentleman called Kautilya and having Kautilya say that he was actually Chanakya. Now, the theory goes, the Guptas, in following the Arthashastra and its recommendations on politics and war and bureaucracy and law and elephant training and budgets and magic and so on, could claim to be following the legacy of the Mauryas. And by calling themselves Chandragupta and by giving land to Brahmins, they were basically saying, just like your textbook did, that these rulers were actually Sanskari boys, just like the OG Chandragupta, so they were just following tradition. As I said in episode 6 of this season, which talked about innovative new forms of state formation through temple building, the new was always presented as being nothing more than the old. You also see this in Udaygiri, where, as I said in episode 3, the Guptas built pillars and columns which very deliberately followed modern forms. Whether all this is actually true, though we need lots more evidence to really say for sure, but it seems to make sense given the evidence we have right now. I see I've once again done my favourite thing and gotten distracted. Now we were talking about the geopolitics of the Arthashastra. The Arthashastra, when it comes to a weak king dealing with a strong neighbour, is very clear on the fact that there's no way you can take him on directly, so you have to ally with someone who also has an interest in taking him down. Which means he looked to his other neighbours. So, if you, a weak Gupta ruler in Magadha, want to take out the Maukharis in Madhyadesha, you will look to their north, to the tiny city of Sthaneshtvara, ruled by its insignificant merchant princes turned kings, the Pushyabhutis. Of course, just like Donald Trump is a business genius, the is also made up an origin story, which is really too funny not to mention. So, there was a chap called Pushyabhuti who was, like all founders of dynasties, a sanskari boy. But because this origin story was made up at a time when a Shaiva idea of sanskar was around, not the Vaishnava or Gupta idea of sanskar, the sanskari thing that Pushyabhuti is supposed to have done was help a Shaiva ascetic who was performing a ritual in a graveyard sitting on a corpse with a flame lit in its mouth. Isn't that interesting? Now the ritual succeeded in summoning the local Naga spirit and our friend Pushyabhuti was about to attack it with a magical sword. Out popped Lakshmi, goddess of royal fortune and at that exact moment announced that for his sanskariness, Pushyabhuti's family would now be kings which really makes perfect sense if you think about how well Trump's branding has worked for him anyway, the point is, the later Guptas tried to screw the Maokharis by marrying into the Pushyabhuti family, which made the Pushyabhutis very important indeed. Now the Pushyabhutis were also quite militarily competent, fighting very successfully against the retreating Hunas for control of the Punjab. The Maokharis took notice and immediately married their young king to the next generation of Pushyabhutis, in this case the 13-year-old princess. As I said, if you were a woman in ancient India, life wasn't great even if you were a royal. But by doing this, the Mawkharis had basically out the Guptas and all was well. But then the Pushyabhuti king died and was succeeded by his elder son. Then the king of Bengal allied with the Guptas of Malwa and attacked and killed the Mawkhari king, taking Karnikubja. It seemed like revenge had been achieved. But the thing with revenge is that it never really ends, does it? So the new Pushyabhuti king attacked the Guptas of Malwa and defeated them. And then he was assassinated by the king of Bengal, which left only his younger brother to take the throne, the 15-year-old Harshavardhana, he who provides joy. Somehow, Harsha, or more likely factions in Harsha's court, won over the senior commanders of the armies of Thanesar and also managed to convince senior members of the court of Kanauj to appoint him as ruler in the absence of a direct heir to the ruling Maurya line, perhaps because they had them murdered or kidnapped. The year was 606 CE, and this 15-year-old had, through an extraordinary series of events, suddenly ended up in nominal control of most of North India, which lay mauled and confused after decades of war. How the hell did this happen when us 25-year-olds can barely have a social and professional life at the same time, I ask myself? The answer to that question is, I think, that humans have nowhere near as much control over history as we pretend to. The world is mad, complex, chaotic. Sometimes it throws up opportunities which, if we're lucky, we can exploit, but in general, we're just responding to what's around us right now, whether we're a Maharaja raja or a humble genius who lives in Bangalore. When we construct the history of our lives, the history of our world, we select the bits that our brains can understand, that we can weave into a story. But who are we kidding? The universe doesn't exist to tell us a story. Our brains can't comprehend the sheer, spectacular, awesome vastness of the way the reality operates. Even the models which we use to explain physics are, at the end of the day, just models that work in some places and don't work in others. There are no completely universal underlying laws. No overarching King meta-narratives, no grand unified theory that explains the weirdness of reality. The way I see it, history and for that matter our understanding of our own personal lives are stories that we tell ourselves. They say more about us than the unspeakable grandeur of reality. Now think about that next time you feel like having an existential crisis. Anyway, so Harsha could have ended up as an insignificant victim of court politics just like so many Indian kings. But he grew up to be ruthless enough to survive and eventually pay our poetic friend Banabhatta to rewrite a history of his life. So we can't even be sure if what little we know about Harsha is actually accurate. Isn't that fun? I find it interesting to see how many historians have gone around saying that Harsha was the greatest and most noble of people but that's based on his own propaganda. What we can actually say for sure based on inscriptions that Harsha spread around as he travelled North India in his moving military camp, issuing land grants, displaying his might across these ancient plains, is that he did somehow manage to convince most of the Ganga plains to fall in line. It seemed that Harsha had, at last, managed to restore the legacy of the Guptas and that North India would once again emerge onto the global stage as a superpower. To cement that status though, Harsha needed to capture the wealthy ports of Gujarat. He tried to do it through marriage like so many ancient kings but now a new problem was rising in the Deccan. You see, just as the Guptas had collapsed in the early 6th century and their artists had spread into minor courts, one of the Vakataka families of the Wanganga plains of eastern Maharashtra had managed to grab control of lucrative trade routes heading to India's west coast. They hired these artists, creating the spectacular art of Ajanta which I promise I'll someday make a whole episode about, and also went around trying to attack and subjugate other states in the vacuum that was emerging. Unfortunately, things didn't work out well for our old friends and they were quickly overpowered by their vassals, one of whom may have been a dynasty called the Kadambas. And before we get to attest to the Kadambas, I'll give you the TLDR and tell you that they were overpowered by their vassals, who would become one of the most extraordinary and long-lasting dynasties in Indian history, the Chalukyas. By the year 609 CE, three years after Harsha's coronation, the vultures were circling around the Chalukyas. Their young king, Pulakeshin, the great lion, had just killed his uncle and seized the throne. But just as Harsha expanded across the north, Pulakeshin expanded across the Deccan, scooping up its ancient trading cities with bridges of boats, capturing the fertile territories watered by the Krishna and the Godavari, and unabashedly ordering sackings and city destructions if they served his purposes. For example, when he got his hands on Banavasi, the mighty fortress which served as the Kadamba capital, he had the main Kadamba line completely slaughtered. At least they vanish abruptly from the historical record, and the name Kadamba doesn't appear until centuries later in Goa. It was an extremely clear message those who sided with the Chalukyas would be rewarded, those who did not would be crushed. The rulers of Gujarat were now suspended between two ambitious powers who didn't have the slightest intention of leaving them in peace. The tension ticked higher and higher. History moves in inscrutable ways. Sometimes all you need is a spark and an immense process unfolds which you can never really predict. That spark came when Gujarat sent a tribute mission to the brash young Chalukya king, who read this as a sign of weakness, and invaded Lata, the southern part which controlled the geo-economically critical estuaries of the Tapti and Narmada, and installed a relative of his as viceroy. Harsha must have been watching with growing surprise and interest as this audacious young rival of his survived every challenge that was thrown at him. But this must have been the last straw. It was the winter of 618 CE, just 8 years since Polakation came to the throne. There would be no better chance for Harsha, who had been king for 12 years, to put him in his place. The astrologers were consulted and campaign plans drawn up. For the first time in nearly 300 years, a North Indian king would once again attack the Deccan. Harsha headed to the Narmada. What happened in the months to follow would change the history of India, if not the entire world. What happened in India between the 6th and 12th centuries, between the fall of the Guptas and the arrival of the Turks in North India? As you might have gathered from all the epic developments that we've seen in the last 10 episodes and especially in this season finale, a lot. All this innovation across the subcontinent expanded, interacted and developed into a period of spectacular family drama cutthroat politics, devastating wars, religious and cultural creativity, urbanization and economic development. And a lot of it really happens in the Deccan and in South India. Over the next half millennium, South India would invade Southeast Asia and rapidly become one of the world's most urbanized regions while the Deccan would invade North India multiple times and be acclaimed by travelers as one of the four most powerful empires in the entire world, on par with the Byzantines, Chinese and and the Arabs. Understanding all this is a project that's obsessed me since Season 1 of Echoes and now with Season 2 at an end, my friend, thank you so much for listening and I'm happy to tell you that I'm reaching the final stages of writing a book about the extraordinary history of one of the medieval world's forgotten superpowers, the Deccan. And it begins exactly where Season 2 ends, with Harsha's armies crossing the Narmada River to meet Pulakeshin. The book will be printed by Juggernaut and, I hope, come out sometime in 2020. It'll be a 500-year popular history of the Deccan, told from the perspectives of the Chalukyas and their relatives and rivals, and at the risk of a bit of self-promotion, it'll be like no history book you've ever read. But hey, Echoes isn't going away. Season 3 will just take a little longer to come out while I figure out what exactly is going to be in the book and also other simple existential questions on the side. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. I promise you that ancient India has many many untold treasures for us to explore and that I intend to do it for many years to come. My name is Anirudh Kaneseti. I'm sitting here in Bangalore, me, a body made of repurposed molecules forged in the heat of a star, quenched in the depths of the oceans, breathed, remade by all the life forms that ever lived on this earth. I carry the imprints of 3.9 billion years of evolutionary history in each of my cells, and I call to you across hundreds of miles, across billions, trillions, quintillions of human interactions. You're fing awesome. And hey, Karthik, Tejas, Abbas, Zoya, Kevin, Aishwarya, Sujata, all the people who've reached out to me on Twitter and Instagram and have become some of my dearest friends, and of course all those great historians whose work has inspired me and filled my nights and days with thoughts. I love you guys, and thank you for helping me do what I love. This is Echoes of India, a history podcast. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Akanisetti, that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I, or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well, at IVM Podcasts.